Welcome to this special episode of my podcast, uh, which is about Peter May's recent book, The Search for God and the Path to Persuasion, that he has published with Malcolm Down Publishing 2016. Uh, He's got uh, a lot of uh, good recommendations uh, from folks you may have heard of, uh, quite deservingly. Uh, Lindsay Brown, director of the Lausanne Movement, formerly international director of IFES, says it's a superb, fresh and fully orbed articulation of persuasive evangelism. Uh, Bruce Winter uh, says, I am much impressed by this excellent book. William Edgar, who's a professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, says this is a marvellous book, fresh, free of jargon and nonsense. I know of no better study on persuasion. And in my own uh, commendation, uh, I say that Peter May's clarion call for reasoned faith and persuasive evangelism is grounded in a lifetime of biblical study and practical experience. Like its author, this book is witty, winsome and wise. And uh, you can see for yourself how true that is as I join Peter May uh, at his home to discuss some of the themes and content of his book, The Search for God and the Path to Persuasion. I am delighted to be here at the Southampton home of Dr. Peter May. Thank you very much for having me around and for the uh, the mug of tea. So perhaps just to, to kick us off, who have you written this book for? Who's the book aimed at? What do you hope the book will do uh, to your readers? Well, this this is uh, not a straightforward and easy question. (laughs) I think the the person that I've always got in mind in what I'm writing is the honest seeker for truth. Mm. And and perhaps they're a rare breed. (laughs) And some of them are clearly not Christian. Um, And I'm hoping that the book isn't so Christian that they won't be able to pick it up and to tolerate Mm. perhaps some of the in-chat that is there Mm but will engage with the rest of it. There are lots of other people who are would-be Christians, perhaps were Christians, perhaps have just been overwhelmed by contemporary secularism mm. and really lost any grip that Christ is really uh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Mm. So I'm hoping there'll be some of them. But I'm hoping also that, that people who are seriously thinking about how Christians should share their faith today will read it. They're the primary audience. And the book's grown out of frustrations at different points with the way I see evangelism being done. Mm. Trying to go back to look at the apostles, how they did it, and what fundamental lessons we can learn. This is uh, Ari, by the way, everyone. (laughs) Ari, when we want your comments, we'll ask for them. Yes, he's quite so. <laughs> so let me let me um, read what I think is one of the key quotes uh, from uh, the search for this from uh, chapter four, and uh, ask you to unpack a little bit about this. I think this is put very nicely. You say there is, to my mind, only two types of evangelism: persuasive evangelism and unpersuasive evangelism. And there's no point or purpose in being unpersuasive. Yet, contemporary evangelism can rarely be described as, and then you quote from Acts 19.8, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. 
and you, you were just saying there in your introductory remarks about some of your frustration with yes. the way in which Christians and the church has, has gone about spreading its message. So, what do you what do you mean by this key this key phrase for you about persuasive uh, evangelism? If I look at it from to, to what I've experienced in evangelism, I spent far too long, a large part of my life involved in the General Synod of the Church of England. Yeah. And for 10 years of that, I served on the Board of Mission. And they produced a report on mission, which in many ways was good. Mm. It said some really helpful things, and it inspired a lot of people. But the word persuasion didn't come into it at any point. Mm. It had a list of the theological words used in mission, and persuasion wasn't there. Or apologetics. And apologetics also. Uh, apologetics was mentioned, but tends to be mentioned and very often is seen as a particular discipline for intellectuals who are seeking to understand Christian faith. Right. And, and there are two aspects to that. First of all, that they're highly informed uh, intelligent people yeah. um, but also they are seeking and actively engaged in the quest but, but it seemed to me that Apostle Paul wasn't hanging around for people like that he didn't go to Athens because they'd invited him, they were so keen to know that they said come and tell us <laughs> no he, he was on his way telling people whether they wanted to hear it or not and of course at the Areopagus he got this invitation to come and explain more fully having met these people in the marketplace. Um, so he wasn't waiting, he wasn't looking for, for people who were searching for God. He was challenging people where they were and telling them that actually God's made us that we might seek after him. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're saying, in, in, in your view, in the New Testament, there isn't um, evangelism on the one hand and then... Uh, for the few who might need it, there's apologetics or giving a defence of, of the faith. I mean, that they're not sort of separate things. They're not separate things. I think that is um, a fundamental theme of the book. That um, I mean, there's no discussion about apologetics as a subject in the New Testament. Mm. There's no talk about people who are gifted apologists. There is the reference to the gift of evangelism. What does that involve? It seems to me that part of that task is to persuade people that it's true. Mm. Uh, and that the model in our minds, which is there again and again in the New Testament, is this idea of arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Mm. Billy Graham came to the UK when I first heard him in 1966, and that's the year I became a Christian. I became a Christian right. shortly before we came. Mm. So I found myself scooped up into the throngs of people who went to hear him. And that was a good experience in some ways, but a disturbing one in another. Mm. Because I had previously been reading the New Testament. And I was trying to say, how does this relate to that? Mm. And I couldn't join that circle up at all. The New Testament spreading of the gospel seemed to be internally dynamic, um, spontaneous, uh, engaging with individuals, adjusting to a wide range of circumstances, um, whereas this was highly programmed, highly organised, this is the way it's done. Uh, the way a person becomes a Christian is you first of all listen to a monologue, uh, you then come forward for 
counselling, whatever that meant, mm. uh, which really meant teaching a little bit more about what it meant to become a Christian. Mm. And so I was quite unsettled about, well, how should we be doing it today? Mm. Well, I, I love the, the story that you tell in the book, and I've heard you tell before as well about your experience of, of then discovering whilst at university yeah. um, how... Um, that New Testament picture of, a, of, of persuasive evangelism suddenly came alive in your I- experience. Yeah. So, so tell us about that. Well, um, I was I was twenty when I started the medical school, and um, I found in my year group of a hundred students, nearly a hundred, there were five Christians, and so we got together and we um, supported a, a program of weekly talks that we invited people, often members of the uh, medical school staff who would come and speak at these things, and various other people from outside. And um, one of the people who spoke was uh, a wonderful surgeon, general surgeon, Miss Muriel Crouch, quite a character, quite delightful, brilliant teacher, and she would teach anatomy with great enthusiasm, and then she'd come and speak at our senior meeting. And the students attended in great numbers, because she was a great character. And after one of her talks, a few days later, a girl asked me um, a question. I've got a question coming from Miss Crouch's talk. And she asked me her question. And so we sat on a settee in this large common room with students milling around all over the place. And I, I struggled. I'd only been a Christian a year. And I struggled to um, answer her adequately. And as I did, other people joined in. And somebody else would say, yeah, but you can't say that. What about this? I begin to answer him. And then somebody else would chip in. And then the thing just steadily grew. People were pulling up chairs to join us. Some sat on the floor. Uh, A whole range of others were standing around listening. Until we had, within sort of 10, 15 minutes, we probably had 25 people engaged in my attempt to answer one question. One question yeah. <laughs> and um, so I, it was going every which way. It was quite chaotic. And yeah. I was, you know, um, floundering around uh, in a very inadequate and inexperienced way, trying to talk about and defend Christian belief as I understood it to be. And um, eventually a bell went uh, to advertise the afternoon sessions. Everyone grabbed their things. They all rushed out of the room, leaving me with the original person. Mm. And... Um, I asked her what, I apologised that I had not even, I couldn't even remember what, what her question was. And she said, um, I wanted to know what it meant to be born again. And added, but it doesn't matter now. Oh. I said, I was quite disappointed. I said, <laughs> surely it does matter. I said, no, no, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter now. I said, well, why is that? Well, I just have been... <laughs> in a very cool manner, downbeat manner, just letting me know she had just been born again. I was flummoxed, you know, where does this go? And so I gave her a book to read and encouraged her to read the New Testament. And well, she just flew as a Christian, and I'm still in touch with her. She's in Australia. Her daughter is a missionary in Indonesia. Um, 
50 years later, mm. almost, mm. you know, she's still running strong. And her life was turned around in that rough and tumble discussion. And it was there that I had this sense of this is that, this is exciting, this is vibrant, this is dangerous. Mm. You know, I could get a fist in the face. This is not particularly organised. <laughs> totally disorganised, that's yeah. right. There's no programme going on here. Mm. This is just people talking about very fundamental issues about life uh, and whether or not God exists and whether he's declared himself. Mm. Uh, and so, so yeah, uh, the light dawned on me then. The, the, now I started looking more deeply at this business of dialogue in the New Testament, which mm. is hidden in mm. the New Testament. It's usually, the word is usually translated as reasoned. He reasoned in the marketplace. He reasoned right. um, in the school of Tyrannus. Yeah. And these various, he's in dialogue with people. And that's yeah. crucial. Dialegami. Yes. It's the Greek there. And that's in the context where it comes in Acts 17, Thessalonica, and, and Luke says that he's explaining mm. and also giving evidence for. Mm. Um, now, both these things, you explain things when you're getting feedback, but I don't understand. Well, let me explain it this way. Mm. You know, uh, and in giving evidence, yeah. well, hold on, what are the areas you're doubting? So, well, I don't believe this or that. So, well, look, the reason for that is this. Mm. So, this business of giving reasons and giving evidence is all, can only be done in a dialogue context. Mm. Dialogue is central to this. And as a result of that, um, some of them were persuaded. And then, just in case we haven't got the point, Luke records that Paul said, uh, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you. So the church goes on about proclaiming, but it has this vision of proclaiming mm. in a pulpit, six foot above contradiction, in a very formal mm. environment and very safe environment. Mm. Um, but Paul's proclaiming was done in the marketplace, in the rough and tumble, um, and in the synagogue and wherever. Uh, mm. He could engage with people who would discuss these things. Mm. Well, talking about that, that sort of... <clears throat> non-biblical in that idea of just just proclaim the gospel you have a whole uh, section in the book where you go into some of the the 20th century theological recent theological roots of that sort of just proclaim the simple gospel and don't have anything to do with apologetics and and reasoning and arguing and debating and dialoguing yeah. and you, you trace a lot of this back to the theology of Karl Barth uh, in uh, Germany in the early 20th century so how how does Barth his theology and his situation play into this modern divorce of evangelism from persuasion? I think we're, every generation of Christians is struggling within their own context and culture. His was a particular culture uh, of Germany before the First World War. Mm. And there was this emphasis on German folk religion, mm which distorted, and Christianity was made to fit into, and he was battling against this, particularly as they were becoming increasingly uh, warmongering. Mm. And then after the First World War, the, the rising of, of, of Nazism, there the, the were these tremendous tensions that Bart was trying to reject all this additional accretions to Christianity mm. that he was experiencing in Germany. To, it is the crucial fact of Christ revealed in the scripture that's of fundamental importance. Mm. And, you know, my heart was say, yes, yes, well, of, of course. course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the trouble is that he overstated it. 
Um, so he, he wouldn't... He, he, he saw the issues going entirely from God to man. He didn't see that any of the argument went from man mm. questioning his own weakness and finitude and all the rest of it, um, groping towards trying to understand God. Mm. And so he dismissed evidence for Christianity. This was God speaks and you either hear it or you don't hear it. Mm. Um, but it doesn't need argument. It doesn't need evidence from history. It doesn't need evidence from nature. Mm. So natural theology was excluded. Uh, it was entirely a theological argument. Mm. You look at what God has said in Christ and you respond to that. Mm. And I think that has encouraged a great many people to a simplistic approach to evangelism, whereas, mm. you know, you are the unchristian audience, I am the Christian, I will tell you what you should believe. Yeah. And you thought, hang on, yeah. <laughs> what's that about? And so I've looked at, in the book, a whole series of ways this unargued evangelism works in practice. Mm. And it is unpersuasive. Um, and they've overlooked, I think, the pivotal word in how we can begin to correct and strengthen the church's task in mission. Mm. Certainly there, you can point to, um, I mean Luke in particular, it's been said that his joint work of, of Luke and Acts functions in a sense as a sort of, among other things, of course, but as an apologetics guidebook for, for the early church, as, as, a, as, a, as a sort of how-to manual of spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. And he gives the models of, of the work of St. Peter and Paul particularly in Acts, and you see Paul engaging in natural theology from the yeah. world to God <laughs> with the farmers yeah. and with the philosophers. Yes. And of course yeah. the very beginning of Luke's Gospel he sets out his historical credentials. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, this is fundamentally important uh, yeah. that these things happened at a particular point in time and we've got documentary evidence mm -hmm. and eyewitness testimony right from the outset yeah. which he states very clearly. So, um, I think of going go to John's Gospel, and John's Gospel, of course, famously ends with him giving the reason why he's given the testimony of John's Gospel. Mm -hmm. This, this, these things about Jesus are written so that you may believe. Mm -hmm. This testimony is the grounds for you to believe in in Christ, and yes. records Christ Himself saying, "You know, believe me because of what I say." But but even if not that, believe me, because of the evidence of the miracles well, that I that I work. So and these were signs. Yeah. And there are lots of signs in our world, including signs in people's experience that there's got to be more to life than mm. this. Mm. Uh, people facing the the end of their lives, concerned about their legacy, because they, they think there's got to be more. I can't just die. If I just snuff it, mm. that's I'm then. There's nothing of me left. I've got to leave something, you know, uh, and that I think is 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 a cry from the heart. Mm. Um, Book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Book of Ecclesiastes is that. full of that, uh, and a number of uh, modern writers highlight issues. I've got a, a very nice quote from Matthew Paris in the book, mm. just showing the yearning in people's heart that there has to be deep in their own marrow that says there's got to be more to life than this. Um, and I think that's right. So you can start 
explaining the gospel in ways that, that link to the hungers of the human heart designed by God, obviously for, for relationship with God from a Christian viewpoint, but there, there are lots of different angles into making those connections. And this is, is pivotal in the whole dialogue thing. You, you First of all, you need to find out where they are at. Mm. What sort of worldview do you have? What do you think about life? Mm. And, and so you have to, ideally, mm. you can't always only do it. I mean, there is a, a place to proclaim to a multitude of people, but the, the best way to do it is one-to-one. Mm. And where are you at in all this? Mm. Uh, I think life is meaningless. I think life is for pleasure. I think life's a matter of chance. Yeah. I think life is, you know, very much the things the Stoics and the Epicureans mm-hmm. uh, who dealt with Paul in Athens mm-hmm. believe that it's a, it's a matter of chance or it's a matter of destiny mm-hmm. um, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, so in finding out where they're at, you can then begin to address those issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both in terms of explaining how the gospel engages with this, but also giving reasons why. Um, what is the evidence for that assertion? Um, so that they become persuaded. Well, one of the things I've tried to do in the book is to uh, have a, a good hard look at this business of what it means to be persuaded. Mm. Because I think we talk very glibly about proof. Mm. Or prove it to me. Yeah. Um, and we don't prove no. things. Outside of mathematics and logic, we... All truth and all scientific truth is a matter of probability. The evidence points in this direction. Mm. This is probably what is going on here. Um, But scientific theories blow up. They get rewritten. They get major amendments to them Mm. as we learn more and as we develop the ideas better. So all truth is provisional. And... um, we can only deal with our own grasp of it intellectually if they're complicated issues mm-hmm. quite beyond my understanding that as far as I do understand them I need to be addressed at that level mm-hmm. which is where a one-to-one dialogue uh, can take me uh, as far as my understanding can take me. Mm-hmm. You open the book by looking at the the questions that Jesus asked people yes. uh, who came across, often in yeah. one-to-one <laughs> situations. Well, I think that chapter was really a sermon to myself because I'm very lazy when I'm sitting on a train with people. And you do find yourself on trains with people who want to talk. And, uh, you know, I think, perhaps if I don't want to talk, I want to read my book, you know. <laughs> and, and yet, if one just seizes the opportunities, and that does mean asking questions. Mm. And when you look at the Gospels, Jesus was asking questions the whole time. Do you see these stones here? Let's have a discussion about the temple. Let's just open that up. And then he makes the point that not one stone is going to be left on another. This is all going to be demolished. Um, of course, it's much easier to start a, a, a conversation with another person by asking them questions about themselves or about a matter of current concern in the news or whatever than it is to start jumping in with are you saved by the blood of the lamb brother (laughs) absolutely you know it's this lovely phrase in the epistle of peter um, that we should engage with people with gentleness and respect Mm. we've got to get behind their views try and understand where they're coming from 
and speak to them in a way that's appropriate. And mm. I think so, uh, your, your writing has been very helpful here in helping me to think about rhetoric. Mm. You know, there's good rhetoric and there's bad rhetoric. Well, there's a whole chapter on, on bad rhetoric in the book. Mm. But the good things about rhetoric are the integrity of the argument the one's presenting, uh, the integrity of the presenter, mm. and the desire of the audience to want to listen. Why should they be interested? We can't just assume people are interested. Mm. But, you know, we have to feel our way with these things. We need to reveal enough of ourselves that people will listen to us mm. and take us seriously. Uh, we need, when we have the opportunity to speak to speak clearly, that it makes sense and communicates in a way that the person we're talking to understands. You might understand what you're trying to say, but mm. it's not what we say that matters, it's what they here that yeah. matters. Yeah. So we've got to, to communicate these ideas clearly. Mm. And they've got to have a disposition to want to hear what we're saying. Otherwise, you know, you're talking to somebody who's mm. blanked off from you. We've all had that experience uh, in all sorts of situations. Mm. Um, mm. But then, you know, it's when people move to the edge of the seat and they, really? You know, then you, you know you're engaging. Mm. Mm. Um, Oh, and we've got to do that. So I, I think you know, these rhetorical factors are very important. We do need to think clearly how we express the message. Um, we do need to be interesting enough for them to want to hear us. <laughs> um, mm. and, and if our conversation is bland and boring, then they're, they're mm. not going to want to draw us out on these things. Um, they've got to want to, to, to open up to us. So quite interesting dynamics in all this. In chapter five, you say we need to get back to modelling evangelism today on the rather more demanding example of the apostles uh, given it in the New Testament, where they persuade people that, that what they're saying is actually true. Now, if I might um, you know, play devil's advocate with this for a moment, isn't, isn't all this talk about truth and persuasion for a sort of modernistic and don't we live in uh, a postmodern era a sort of post truth and argument era where what the evangelism really needs to be doing is to be about uh, inclusiveness of people and, and sharing our story and sharing our life uh, with people rather than arguing with them about yeah. things and everyone's truth is their own truth, and what's true for you isn't right. true for me. And I hope we see this wonderfully in the current debate about people choosing their own gender. Mm. Uh, it does go very deep into our culture. Mm. And uh, yes, I think we have to... It's one of the reasons why I, I, I say we have to follow the more difficult path here. Mm. That, that we can't just, in a complex culture as ours is just slip into simplistic sloganising, just telling people certain truths that can, can just bounce off them. Mm. Um, so I uh, recall, uh, recall a, a dialogue I did on the local radio with uh, a well-known national atheist about the resurrection. It was an Easter time discussion. And it finished up uh, talking about judgment. Mm -hmm. And uh, this person said that they were sorry for me that I believed in judgment because it won't happen to them because they don't believe it. Right. And 
right. So we had suddenly, yeah, from interesting. Decide, trying to discuss whether or not the tomb was empty, we've now slipped into yeah. being empty for you, empty for me. The, the judgment is something that only happens if you believe in it. Mm. Well, that's, that is so patently nonsense. We have to wrestle with this. Yeah. People slip into relative ways of thinking, which is very much a feature of our culture. Mm. So, you know, if we're going to state truths, we've really got to try and help people to engage with why that is objectively true mm. and not just a subjective, relative truth. Yeah. So there's a whole section mm. in the book mm. on those difficulties. Mm. I sometimes observe our, our culture deeply committed to relative truth except when it's watching game shows on television <laughs> and then everybody intuitively knows that the, the, the answer is either right or wrong is right or wrong and, you know. <laughs> there's a lot of double think yeah. in our culture at all levels like that and you know we have to work our way through which you can do in a one to one thing because mm. you can push people as to what they mean by you know, as I could in that um discussion about judgment. You can mm. then go back and say, well, do you think that's, that's actually true? Is one only going to be judged if you believe in judgment? Um, there's a great leap to realise that, you know, if it's true, it's objectively mm. true for everyone. And clearly, that's what the message that Paul took into the ancient world, yeah. that we're all ultimately going to have to face yeah. the judge God's going to judge the world through the man appointed, mm. which is Jesus. Mm. So he's going to be the yardstick. And against that yardstick, we're, we're all in difficulties. Mm. Um, unless we find the forgiveness and the refreshing of God. So, did, um, did persuasive evangelism play a role in your own journey to faith? Mm. What, what, what I optimistically thought I could do at the age of 17 was to sort this out once and for all and leave it. Mm. Uh, I didn't have a religious family. Um, I was aware of those who called religious people God-botherers. Mm. And um, I didn't want to go through life bothering about this if we could just deal with it. And once I tweaked that the whole thing hang on, hung on the New Testament... Then I thought, oh, well, then I'd get myself a copy. I started reading a authorised version, and I soon gave up on that. I went out and bought myself a, a New English Bible New Testament, uh, which seemed to be a very plain, ordinary English. And I thought, well, I'll read that through, then I will decide on this Christianity business once and for all, and I thought I'd be able to park it. Mm. Right. So we're not going to go on worrying about that any longer. Mm. And having gone through it the first time, I was quite bewildered, really. It was, it was a very different sort of book than I thought it was. It was about mm. real people. It was about narratives. It was about history. Um, and extraordinary history. So after the first read-through, I thought, I, I've got to just do this again. So I read through it again. I read, read it very slowly. I just took a chapter a night. It takes about nine months to go through the New Testament mm. like that. But before I put the light out each night, I'd read another chapter and fire all my questions at it. Mm. And so I went through it the second time. And the second time, 
I began to see how the resurrection of Christ was absolutely pivotal in the whole discussion. Because if that wasn't true, then the whole thing collapsed. Mm. So I went through it the third time, really, to try and nail the resurrection issue. Mm. Um, so it was a very gradual coming to faith. Eventually I, I realized that the, the, the eye for me uh, was the simple realization that whatever the truth of the matter, whether Christ was raised or not, the, 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 the pivotal issue was that they actually believed it. I couldn't argue with that. For some reason, they believed this absurdly unlikely thing that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, the, there was no question of them trying to con people. I mean, many of them went to their deaths on the strength of it. They actually believed it. And that was actually pivotal, really, because it moved the whole discussion on as to how then did they ever get into that frame of mind mm. and with such vigour and such conviction that carried the world over the next generation. Mm. Uh, this message of the risen Christ exploded across the world. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it was a, a gradual sifting and thinking and very much on my own. I, mm. th there was very little on television in those days that could help you. I can remember a series with Malcolm Muggeridge and Alec Vidler uh, riding on donkeys, mm -hmm. following the footsteps of St Paul and commenting about it along the way. I thought that was terribly helpful um, and quite uh, winsome and, and attractively done. But there was very little in the public media anywhere to help so it was a lonely sort of question I just felt this is a straightforward issue Christianity depends on the New Testament the New Testament is now in my hands I've got and I'm not going to let it bother me all my life I want to resolve yeah. this so in a sense you you entered into a dialogue of your questions with the with the New Testament authors and looked for help and explanation elsewhere. Mm. So um, uh, there were a number of other books that I, mm. uh, I needed to go and buy, books about the New Testament. So, mm. Are these documents credible, authentic? You know, when were they written? Uh, do we really know who wrote them? Mm. Um, so I wanted to know those sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. You've been involved in persuasive evangelism in all sorts of, of different forum so perhaps you could uh, bring to us some of your experience uh, encouragement from that of, of what can be done in this area and some of the sort of major things that you've been involved with down the years that have um, really um, sought to to put this into into practice that you've sort of learned from and you're sharing the the bounty of that experience uh, in this book with us well one of the uh, happy uh, discoveries just browsing through a large bookshop uh, one day, uh, I came across a book by uh, Anthony Flew and Gary Habermas debating the resurrection. Now, I didn't know, I, I'd heard of Anthony Flew, I didn't know who Gary Habermas was, uh, but if this was anything like a good debate about the resurrection, I thought that would be a very interesting thing. So, um, I pulled that off the shelf and it introduced me to, to Gary, whom I later had the opportunity mm. to meet. 
and um, I've done a number of things with him along the way and also just talked to him at length about the issues and the historical evidences. So that's been an inspiration. But another person I met some 15 years ago was William Craig and I heard him speak at a conference in Hungary mm. and he was speaking on major issues about cosmological argument, the fine-tuning argument um, and the historicity of Christ in a way that I'd not heard anyone in Britain talking with such scholarship, clarity uh, uh, and intention. So I was very keen to get Bill over mm. to the UK. Uh, and so I had the, 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 the privilege of organising a couple of major tours uh, around mm. British universities uh, in 2007 and in uh, 2011. Mm. And uh, they provided uh, great opportunities to um, see what atheists can say to these issues. Mm. So, for instance, we filled the Central Hall Westminster with about 2,000 people as William Craig debated with mm. Lewis Woolpert. Mm. Um, the atheist um, biologist. The atheist mm. biologist, who was a well-known figure and often on the radio in, in those days, and um, for whom atheism was obvious, mm. and he talked in that sort of very easy way and plausible way that of course you know this is all just uh, invented nonsense but when you saw him matched up with somebody like William Craig and see that where the arguments run that was a great unpacking of the arguments and um, you know I think that was uh, that, that was the first uh, meeting of that tour and it really added an enormous momentum to, to what happened since. So. And those events have been filmed and put out on DVDs and YouTube videos. And Fortunately, we decided at the outset to film it. Quite an expensive undertaking, really. But, I mean, it's been seen by so many thousands of people since that um, it was just wonderful. Okay, going back to... Sorry about that, right? Going back to um, Paul uh, in the book of Acts, um, we talked a little bit about um, Paul in Athens being invited to, to talk to the council of the, the philosophers and the Stoics and the Epicureans and so on there. But some people have, have looked upon that description of Paul in Athens as, as a warning of what not to do rather than a model of what to do. And so it's a warning of what not to do because look what Paul does when he goes on to, to Corinth later on. And in Corinth, um, Paul later talks about it now, I decided to only know Jesus Christ and him crucified and not to speak with wisdom and uh, just just with the, you know, the, the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit so that you know, your, your faith wouldn't rest upon human wisdom and so on. There you go, there you go. Later on, Paul uh, decided that it was a mistake to try and engage in these high-fluting intellectual conversations with people and you should just, just preach the simple gospel uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and that should be your model for evangelism and that's what Luke is saying. Is that, is that a correct reading uh, of, of Acts and of Corinthians? Well, uh, if you look at 
Luke's account of Paul at Athens, mm. and then go from there to Paul's account of Corinth in, in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. There does seem to be a mismatch. What's going on here? He didn't come to Corinth with plausible words of wisdom. Um, and he seems to be, well, he has been assumed to be, have taken a completely different stance and offered a very simplistic approach, mm. a more spiritual approach, some would say, <laughs> uh, none of this wretched arguing stuff. Mm. Um, the trouble is that if you look at elsewhere, you realise it's rather more complicated, because if you read Luke's account uh, of, of Paul at Athens and then follow him into the next chapter to read his account at Corinth, and follow him into the next chapter to read his account uh, in Ephesus. Mm. His methodology and his style and the reaction to it mm. all seems to be exactly the same. But there's no suggestion of any change of tack. He was doing the same thing in each of these places. Uh, and then he realised, of course, Athens, he seems to have stayed for a very short time. He was passing through mm. and had this unique opportunity yeah. to go to the Areopagus which clearly would have stayed in his mind, and Luke encourages us to believe that it did, because he's got the bullet points mm. down which um, Luke records. Um, but there's nothing in Luke to suggest that he changed his approach. Uh, Thessalonica, Athens, Ephesus, Corinth, all, mm. all of a piece. And then you look at other, elsewhere in his um, letter, uh, second letter to the Corinthians, he talks about we demolish arguments and pull mm. down strongholds and every lofty idea raised up against the knowledge of God and bring every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And that was said to the Corinthians. Mm. That was, they say, yeah, I can remember him doing that. Mm. <laughs> you know, that would yeah. have been their reaction. Yeah. So there's demolishing, something... Demolishing arguments. How, how do you do that? It's with a bulldozer, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, no, with another argument. With yes. another argument. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it, it can be hard work, but that's what he was doing. Uh, capturing their minds and their thinking. Um, so... This view that, that he changed his tack really doesn't stand up. And of course, it'd be crazy to think that um, Luke records an example of how not to do evangelism and then forgets to say so. Mm. You know, if Luke had any sort of sense of the reservations, why did he give so much space to Athens? Mm. Uh, Athens is of crucial importance, and I was pleased to put a mm. chapter in the book on Paul of Athens because I think one does need to look, think very carefully about what he was doing there. It's a very mm. interesting mm. account mm. that Luke's given us. Um, and then you also then go on to look in, in detail at the, the Corinthian background of what's going on in Corinth and, and this movement in, in, in sophistry or sort of yes. Roman oratory about the second sophistic yes. movement, if I've got that correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is rather fun, really, uh, because I had, whilst... I didn't believe that Paul had changed his tack. I, neither could I understand what the beginning of 1 Corinthians was about. Mm. It seemed to be there's an awful lot going on there that was ringing alarm bells, mm. but there was no thesis that hung it all together. Mm. Um, so I felt we were missing something. We've only got a part of the story here. And so I am greatly indebted to Bruce Winter, who has written a great account of Paul at Corinth, 
compared with other things that were going on in the ancient world. Mm. And he quotes Philo, the Alexandrian Jew, and he quotes um, Diochrysostom and many other first century writers and indeed second and third century writers because they are all documenting one particular style of what's called sophistic oratory which was a sort of revival in the Roman Empire of what they thought was the great tradition of oratory from the ancient Greeks but they it turned into an entertainment mm. um, it was full of emptiness and drama and, uh, and nonsense uh, and, and these people were earning packets of money doing it it was a very wealthy occupation and all sort of the educated classes they were all educated in oratory mm. suddenly all sorts of things in Paul's letter start to come to life that not many you, uh, of you are noble uh, and uh, uh, what's this class distinction well that, it was the upper classes that did this mm. the educated classes that were into this sophistic oratory they, they were, that, that wasn't a concern for truth that was a concern to make money mm. to entertain Paul called it for what it was mm. Um, so I think Bruce Winter's writings have um, really opened this up and it seems to me to be generally agreed among scholars that this is what was going on, uh, that it, it makes an awful lot of sense of all these difficult passages. Why was he concerned to make tents in Corinth rather than uh, allow them to support him? because these other people were making great money out of their speeches. Mm. He wasn't going to fall for that one. And why wouldn't he speak about anything else? Because in with the, the orators, uh, even the audience who could make suggestions of what he might talk about and say, tell us about the death of some mm. ancient Greek god. Or, or, or And then the fellow would act it out and he would really lay it on thick and mm. get on his knees and rent his garments and you know mm. make a tremendous performance and that crowd would whoop with delight Sounds like the sort of first century equivalent of comedy improv night yes that's right I mean Saturday night telly this is what yeah. they were, you know, except they didn't have telly yeah. uh, but um, this is what they would do they would go to the amphitheatre and see who's the latest speaker to come to town mm. and if they liked him they made it worth his while to stay around um, mm. so yes so after looking at Paul of Athens I've then gone on to try and unpack mm. and, and some I think some fabulous stuff in that mm. stuff that mm. I mean Bruce got me looking into these things and I then found mm. a number of uh, yeah. descriptions that I thought were very vivid mm. and compelling as to what was mm. going on in the ancient world and what Bruce Winter has shown is that this was going on at the time when Paul was in Corinth, whereas before it was end of first century, second century stuff. Yeah. People knew this was around, but they just didn't understand that it was as early yeah. as 50 AD mm. in Corinth. Mm. So really, and going back at that, they thought that of a revival of what they thought of as the sort of classical Greek tradition of, of rhetoric, 
But really, it's the sort of rhetoric that at the time Plato was complaining about when he wrote against the sophists yeah. in Plato's work. Plato's not down on philosophy, he's down on the misuse yeah. of philosophy in the, in the, in the sophists. Yes. And Paul is really standing in that yeah. classical tradition of wanting to stand up for, yes. for good rhetoric... Yes. As he talks about, you know, clear communication and uh, an argument yeah. and so on. Pray for me that I'll communicate persuasively the gospel, yeah. etc. But not wanting to support this tradition of of, of bad ent- rhetoric for entertainment's yeah. sake. Right. Yeah. Well, you need to tell me that because yeah. you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> a lot more about Plato than I do uh, as a mere medic. <laughs> but um, yeah. that seems to be utterly consistent yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. One of the things uh, the book is, is particularly strong on, and towards the end, you come on to looking at a, a number of historical um, sort of incidents, as it were, a number of historical characters. Um, starting with your your discussion of the the history of the uh, the Apostle Peter and his his friend John Mark and the um, the sort of early evangelistic career of Peter setting up the church in Rome and, and how that sort of fits in with the origins of, of Mark's gospel. Yeah. Um, and you have a, a discussion which is an expansion of a suggestion I casually well, I made in an in a, a earlier book of mine called Understanding Jesus, but which, having mentioned this uh, theory of mine to you, uh, you came back sort of the next day and said, I was up all night thinking about this. Feat. I've mm. put a new whole new chapter in the book. <laughs> I've done some research. I yeah. think you're onto something. So it was lovely yeah. to see this new chapter <laughs> suddenly get added to the book at the last minute. So tell us a, a bit it's about this. It's been a lot of fun yeah. uh, writing this book because it's made me research and think about things that I hadn't. And, and I kept stumbling onto things along the way. I mean, just this last week, I've some, something I've never seen before. But this whole business of the becoming Christians at Antioch, this breaking through of the gospel there at Antioch in, what, something like 45 AD, mm. it was done by people from Cyprus and Cyrene. Mm. Now, the idea that North African, Libyan, <laughs> as it were today, mm. people were being missionaries in 45, 445 AD to Antioch mm. is, I think, a mind-blow of an idea. And, and you start trying to work out what's going on in the ancient world, the traffic, the movement of mm. people. And, and a lot of that seems to have been facilitated by the regular um, grain ships that were travelling around the Mediterranean basin, taking Alexandrian wheat as the main supplier for the Roman Empire. Mm. Um, and these ships were clearly huge. I mean, Luke records the one that was wrecked off Malta mm. had 276 people on it. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, that's uh, no mean ship. Plus, yeah. plus the grain which yeah. they threw overboard to try and um, ride the storm. So, um, trying to imagine what that world is like is very interesting. And one of the things that's really struck me very forcefully from preparing the various issues in this book is just how the statements of Luke need to be taken seriously. Mm. And he just drops a line in that you skip over, you know, like people from Cyrene coming to Antioch. Mm. He doesn't embellish that at all. You miss it. Hold on, what does that mean? Mm. It's colossal. And he does this with Peter. And Peter 
he describes very vividly, um, is arrested and imprisoned by Herod, has a miraculous escape. His first port of call, having escaped from prison, is to go to John Mark's house, or Mark's mother, and presumably Mark, if he was a young man, then he was based in that house too. That was his instinctive port of call. Um, and we're talking here of what, 42, 44 AD, that sort of period of time. And uh, th then Luke says, he just drops it in, that the, the Paul leaves the message and says, tell the others I've escaped. And Luke says, and then he departed to another place. Full stop, mm -hmm. end of discussion, no more reference of Peter for at least five years. Yeah. It's all very mysterious, isn't it? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I read that sentence again and again to another place. He didn't remain a fugitive in that part of the world. Mm. Uh, he wasn't still trying to escape from Herod and going from uh, safe house to mm. safe house. Mm. Uh, he went somewhere specific, according to Luke. And it was another place, not the same place. So uh, one might reasonably conclude that this was outside Herod's jurisdiction. Mm. Why doesn't he tell us? Was there some reason that he... Uh, one can, there's, a, there's a lot of speculation that has to go into this. Mm. But it seemed to me a, a very intriguing line to pursue um, because there's very early church evidence that, that St Peter founded the church in Rome. But there's no mention of that in the New Testament. We struggle to make an association between Peter and Rome in the New Testament. Um, one Peter was probably written from Rome. Um, but even that's a bit of a speculation, but it's generally assumed to be the case. And then various other things dawned on me. You see, Paul wrote his great letter to the Romans... Mm. in 57 AD and at the end of it he greets I think 28 people by name wow. people that he knows and he, he, some of them he says very little about just greetings to so and so greetings mm. to so and so but then greetings to someone else she was a real mother to me and someone else whose hospitality I enjoyed and my beloved Stachis uh, people he was really obviously fond of and knew well but Paul's never been to Rome and these people are all in Rome what's mm. that about um, so he's met these people somewhere around the Roman Empire moving around mm. and Priscilla and Aquila are mm. obviously key players here but then in 57 AD in that letter to Rome he says of them that your faith is reported all over the world. Well, that's extraordinary. Paul, Paul's never been there. Somebody was there, and somebody was really stirring it up. And so the possibility is that Peter, having escaped from Herod's prison, shortly after the Passover, when we know vast numbers gathered in Jerusalem, Jews from all over the Mediterranean basin of the known world would make their pilgrimage 
for the Passover. Mm-hmm. And then there must have been enormous number of ships ferrying these people back afterwards. So the, it seemed to me suddenly obvious that this was his way of escape. He went off, with, he went off mm-hmm. uh, dressed as a Passover pilgrim. He got out of the country mm-hmm. and away. Where did he go? Well, he may not have gone to Rome. I bet he went somewhere, and it fits very much with other bits of information, the early records that Peter actually got to Rome in the 40s, 40-something, mid-40s AD. And that would be why we didn't hear of him for five years. And that would be why he was able to um, build up the church and send it out. And the particular thing that you triggered for me mm. is what, wh- why is it that... When Claudius uh, was the emperor, uh, he expelled the Jews from Rome. Mm. And there are two important possibilities here. One is that all the Christians in Rome would have been known as Jews. It was only post-Antioch that Mm. they were first called, the Gentiles were being one. So if within the Jewish world, there were Jews and there were Jews. Mm. Um, and they had different views on Christ and the Messianic. That's a Jewish sect. This was a sort of breakaway Jewish sect, and not an inconsequential one. Mm. Clearly a major division in Judaism at that time between those who saw Jesus as the Messiah and those who didn't. But they're all Jews. Mm. So to learn that, according to Suetonius, the Jews were expelled from Rome because of riots at the instigation of someone called Crestus. Mm. Which historians usually take as a sort of garbled reference to the the Christ designation of of Jesus. No one's come up with a better solution than that. That seems to fit. And it also, uh, because uh, Luke himself bears witness to this event in his description of Paul going to Corinth, Mm. where he met... Priscilla and Aquila, who were expelled by Claudius from Rome. And there's nothing to suggest that when Paul met them that they were not leading Christians at Mm. that time. Mm. He's promptly working with them. He stayed in their home. Um, They're already well established. uh, Yeah. So so, so the the, the possibility now is that these people were leading Christians in Rome before they were expelled. Mm. And the question you raised is, why... Did the, em- the emperor suddenly decide enough is enough, get them out? Mm. And you raise the fascinating possibility that, that that could have been because of the publication of Mark's Gospel in Rome. Mm. Uh, and that fascinates my mind uh, massively because, of course, if that was produced then, scattering these people all mm. over the empire, kicking them out of Rome, was the taking copies of Mark's Gospel with them. Taking copies yeah. of Mark with them. It, or, or, or early drafts, yeah. or sections of, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we know that Mark's Gospel came into being around that time. Uh, a late date for Mark doesn't sit comfortably in any thinking that I understand, really, because everyone agrees that um, Luke used Mark. It wasn't the other way around. Mark didn't use Luke. Luke used Mark. So it was available when he wrote his gospel. And it is the natural interpretation. It may not have been this way, but the natural, obvious reading. You would imagine that he wrote his gospel before he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. Mm. 
And the Acts of the Apostles only takes us up to about 62 AD. Yeah. Um, so, if Acts was finished in 62 AD, uh, Luke's Gospel had to have been written. You know, so it's not an inconsequential document to write this. Mm. This was uh, a lot of information gathering, a lot, and, and he, he's so fluent, Luke. He, mm. he doesn't, it isn't just bashed off. There's nothing rough-hewn about him. Mm. He's very eloquent, very precise, very careful in his statements. Um, you know, we, you have to bring the gospel, the first volume of his work, back, I think, several years earlier. Um, and in that case, then you're bringing Mark's gospel, anyway, back into the 50s. Um, but th there's a problem with that, you see, because when uh, Paul names all these people in Rome before he ever gets there, mm. saying greetings here and greetings there and greetings to the other people, no mention of greetings to Peter. He mm. obviously doesn't think Peter's there. Mm. Uh, presumably he knew where Peter was. Uh, mm. Peter could have, you know, well, heaven knows. Yeah. Um, so he comes and goes because he, if he did go to Rome initially after escaping from Herod, we know Peter was back in Jerusalem about 4950 for the first, the first Jerusalem which Council fits after in Herod's death with the expulsion of the Jews by Claudius. Yeah. So he was probably freed up nicely <laughs> to come to that council and to having been thrown out then. Yes, and Herod was. Uh, long gone, he could get out and um, mm. uh, and head head back to Jerusalem. So uh, th those sort of things mm. I think mm. are fascinating. You, but you, you need a bit of imagination, and, yeah. and you know we may have a lot of the story may be wrong. We've only got a fraction of the story. Yes, we haven't got the total picture. Uh, we've got yeah. this wonderful document from Luke which tells us a lot, but doesn't mm. tell us everything. Mm. It doesn't tell us about Mark and Cyrene, where he was born, mm. and Alexandria, where he was buried, mm. um, and what was going on there, uh, and their involvement in it all. But again, we we've read that um, Philo, the Jew from Alexandria, went on a deputation to um, the emperor in Rome mm -hmm. uh, about the unrest amongst the Jews in Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And there's no mention of Christians there, but there wouldn't be. No. Their Christians as such were below the waterline. Mm. This was problems within Judaism. And it seems that they were having enormous turbulence in that very large Jewish community in Alexandria. Mm. And they looked to Mark as being the founder of the church in in Africa. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the Coptic uh, church mm. there in, in North Africa today sees Mark as the pivotal mm. person. But the central point here, presumably, is, is that when the Bible presents itself as being about history, uh, and when you take it in its word about that, even, even in the, the sort of little details, as you say, mm. that you can just pull on this thread or that thread, that it, that it actually fits in coherently, at least, with what we know about that ancient history from, from Jewish sources, from Roman sources, from archaeology, and, and so on. To me, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. Mm. You know, when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, 
Uh, it can be so complicated. You just know there's some blue bits of that obviously going to be sky somewhere, but you don't know where they go. Yeah. And there's a bit of a car here, and there's a, a a a wall of a house there, but you haven't got a clue. And piece by piece, you put pieces in, hmm. and suddenly you think, well, it's obvious. And that was the sort of realization I was getting. Yes, of course, Peter went to Rome, and of course that was the time he went after escaping here. That's why Luke says uh, he, he went to another place. Mm. Let's not smirch his name. Uh, you know, obviously Luke's account was published 20 years later when Peter was in all probability in Rome mm. and where he ultimately died in the persecution mm. of Nero. Mm. That's what everyone seems to believe and mm. there's been no good thesis that it, it wasn't like that. So perhaps he was not saying more about it that this fellow's an escaped prisoner mm. uh, because he wasn't wanting to draw attention to him in Rome 20 years later. Um, mm. He had enough problems without that. Mm. Another figure in Rome that catches your attention uh, is the, the Roman orator and one-time tutor to Nero, talking of Nero, uh, a chap called Seneca, yes. uh, who has some very interesting links with various figures mentioned in the New Testament, although he doesn't appear directly in those pages. Yes, he doesn't. So this was another line that I'm not quite sure why I got onto Seneca, but he was top dog about the time where Paul arrived in 60 AD. Right. It's most probable date for Paul's arrival in Rome mm. was then. And he uh, and Burrus uh, were v virtually uh, controlling the empire. Um, the emperor was this adolescent, mm -hmm. deranged adolescent, Nero. Um, who uh, uh, and Seneca was his speechwriter, and he was you know, deeply involved. And and Paul makes these references, you see, in in Philippians. It talks about the imperial guard, which mm. is Barus's department, uh, and Caesar's household. Mm. And I can remember reading that for the first time in my teens. I mean, intrigued by that. Just a passing passing reference. Mm. It doesn't tell you what it's about. Why does Paul, at the end of that letter, send out greetings to the Philippians from members of Caesar's household? Doesn't mm. name them. Mm. What sort of members? See, if they were low-ranking uh, people, um, servants, mm. why would the Philippians be... Why would that ring any particular bells with mm. them? You know? um, but were they more significant people? rather higher up, who were uh, like Nicodemus, mm. who came to Jesus by night. Um, that's not happy seen by too many people to be here talking to Jesus. Um, mm. And what was going on there? And that there has been this uh, idea that Paul and Seneca had been in correspondence. And there are, I think, from the third century, um, some clearly pseudo documents mm. that don't ring true to suggest that somebody tried to fill in that gap. Mm. Whether there had been any correspondence, we don't know. But but it, it is plausible. They were both in Rome mm. at that time. And the, the other great link here with Seneca is Gallio. Yes. Because Paul was called up when in Corinth and dragged up before Gallio 
who dismisses the case. But I mean, he mm. had one of the Nazarene ringleaders mm. <laughs> dragged before him, and he decides not to take action against mm. him. Now, Gallio, and that's all well documented, and that mm. gives us very clear dates for when this happened, yes. um, because of an, uh, an early inscription which tells us just when Gallio was proconsul mm. um, of Corinth. Um, and um, Gallio was brother of Seneca. Mm. So, is it possible, given the turbulence that was going on, these mm. riots going on in Rome, in Ephesus, yeah. uh, disturbances now in Corinth, coming mm. towards Gallio. Suspicions of turning the world upside down. In from yeah. Thessalonica, these people have come here also, turning the world upside down. <coughs> um, then we have um, Tertullus uh, giving evidence against Paul at Caesarea before he gets shipped off to Rome, mm. uh, saying this man is a plague. Mm -hmm. who are affecting the whole world. Um, so all this turbulence was going on. Do you think Gallia just might have mentioned that to Seneca? Mm. Well, I think it, it has to be mm. quite probable, that, given that these guys are great letter writers. Mm. You know, mm. you'd be interested to have seen who I had before me last week. Yeah. One, of, one of the ringleaders causing all, all the trouble that you know only too well yeah. about. Um, but, you know, I, I just dismissed the case and sent him out. Yeah. Um, and then he ends up coming Seneca's way later. And then he comes yeah. Seneca's way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the point you started to make was how Christian some of Seneca's ideas were. Mm. And I think they, they, they do, uh, they are surprising uh, how he seemed to be so much in sympathy with fundamental mm. Christian ethics in a very rough and cruel society. Mm. He thought kindness was a great virtue, mm. <laughs> that we should give one another a helping hand mm. uh, and we should uh, treat our slaves as we would want to be treated mm. if we were slaves. Now that, that brings very close to the way that Jesus puts the so-called golden rule, which, which is a, a very actually unique way of putting it, although people often say, oh, you know, Confucius said a similar thing, and yes. so on so, 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 It's but, very uh, different from what Confucius <laughs> said and what Rabbi Hillel said, mm. that you shouldn't do the thing, things, people, things that you find hateful. Mm. Um, this is, you actually treat them as you would want to be treated. You put yourself in, and, and, and in the generalities of life, not in specific deeds that you should restrain yourself from doing something that is cruel and unkind, mm. but in the way you engage with slaves, imagine how would you like to be treated if you were a slave. So that really surprised me, because mm. I don't think there's anything before Christ that captures that, and certainly Confucius and Hillel and others had nothing like that, and the Eastern religions had nothing uh, like that. Um, so that's a, a good example of how Christian he seemed to be. And, and, and I found um, a reference to uh, a French reformer um, from 500 years ago who made the observation that um, a pagan reading Seneca would assume he's a Christian. But a Christian reading Seneca would know he's a pagan. <laughs> you know, and clearly there is no evidence he ever yeah. became a Christian. 
but that he could well have been a dialogue with Paul, possibly met him personally, possibly corresponded. But anyway, one of the things we learn about Seneca is that he uh, elected to have his meals with his slaves. Perhaps not every day of the week, but he periodically did this and he would talk informally to him. Well, given the impact that Paul was having in Rome, mm. the assumed impact that he was having, it is quite possible that things were shared at those dinner tables mm. um, about Paul and what was going on, particularly since the, the imperial guard, who were constantly changing, they were responsible for guarding Paul uh, under Burrus, yeah. um, they were changing the whole time, and they, so, so Paul is able to say in his letter, the whole imperial guard knows about Christ, yes. knows that I'm here because of Christ. So it is the combination of these two yeah, men, yeah. the guard and the household. Um, so you need to just join the dots, really. Yeah. It's not rocket science. <laughs> One um, last little historical uh, vignette as it were, uh, uh, you look at, is in Pompeii. You've been to Pompeii, the Roman city that was uh, buried after the volcanic eruption in, was it 79, 79. AD? And um, you particularly talk about uh, a baker and his wife in Pompeii that you think, and I think, uh, argue nicely, is, is plausible to see as having been a Christian couple in Pompeii, and certainly that Christianity was in Pompeii uh, from a very... Uh, early time because we can see the evidence of it there preserved in this uh, volcanic eruption of 79 yeah well and Pompeii is fascinating on any level mm. really but I think there is a story to tell here it's been assumed by many uh, people including Mary Beard that Christianity hadn't arrived mm. in Pompeii but the issues uh, some of the, the key issue, the strongest argument, surround this discovery of the Sator Square there. Mm. Now, the Sator Square, I describe and unpack it in, in the book, and it's a little um, enigma of letters, a combination of words arranged in a square that nobody understands, nobody can work out. And there are lots of uh, Sator Squares uh, discovered from the ancient world and the Roman world, including in Manchester and Sirencester in Britain, uh, but right across Europe, often in, in Roman um, situations, and often in places where Christianity flourished. Mm -hmm. um, but th had enormous difficulty trying to crack what this code seemed to be a code, as a, a teasing arrangement of letters. And... Um, then in, I think, the 1930s, two people, apparently independently, although I want to challenge that mm. story that they could have independently done this, I think somehow there'd been some communication or they'd fed into it. But anyway, I don't know anything about the history of that. But they cracked it. And they came up with the same solution, that the Sagel Square, those letters, um, and, and the key to this, I think, in their thinking, was that in the middle of a... Five letters, uh, five letter words arranged in a square, so you, uh, which reads up and down, backwards and forwards. So the word uh, sator at the top mm. reads as rotas the other way at the, at the bottom. Right. So it's, it's uh, palindromic. It's a palindrome. Yeah. Um, and all these letters, there are nearly all of these letters, there are two of them. 
there's only one letter there's only one of and that's in the middle and mm. that's the N and I think the N must have been the key thing that helped them to crack it mm. because they've put the N in the centre of two words reading upwards and, and downwards Paternoster mm. Our Father uh, which is fascinating, and so some people are trying to say, well, of course, you know, the Jew Jewish Jews had an understanding of God as Father. Well, you know, they might have done. This wasn't central to where Judaism was at. This was a remote idea for them, but it was absolutely pivotal for Christians. And having Paternoster arranged as a cross, mm -hmm. and there it is, etched into a doorway of the house of the baker. Mm-hmm in Pompeii and um, even more than that there is another Sator Square found in the Palestra the park next to the arena in Pompeii which I haven't seen because it's all sealed off mm. um, but there was found on one of the columns there and that particular one they thought had been on the column before the earthquake now, whether that's because this column was found on the ground or not, I don't know. I'd love to know more details about that. But it's been attributed to before the earthquake. The earthquake happened in 63 AD. So if right. we have got evidence of Christianity in Pompeii, it looks as though we've got going right back to 63. So when I learned that, I think it was, hold on. How, how close did Paul ever get to Pompeii? And I think there are a couple of important issues here. One is the expulsion of the Jews in 49 AD from Rome, mm -hmm. two of whom we know went to Corinth, mm. um, but it's quite possible some settled for a seaside resort a little nearer yeah. to Rome, tucked away, so that they could have Jews moved mm. out mm. from Rome at that period. Um, the other factor is that Paul himself arrived at the Bay of Naples on an Alexandrian grain ship, probably mm. in the spring of 60 AD. Could have been the spring of the previous year. Mm. Um, and again, Luke just drops in these little sentences. Um, and uh, he was met by a group of Christians who invited him to stay with them for a week. Mm. No more discussion than that. Mm. Hold on. There was a group of Christians seemingly mm. on the quayside welcoming him yeah. in. The welcoming he, committee knowing, knowing that he was coming somehow and, yeah. and Seneca put him up for a week. Yes. <laughs> and Seneca comes into this in that Seneca described uh, these green ships arriving at Puteoli. Um, mm -hmm. and how the, the population would gather on the quay to see these great ships come in. Mm -hmm. And this, according to Luke's account, sounds as though it was the first ship in since the, uh, after the winter. Right. Uh, the Paul had to winter in Malta and mm -hmm. then got the first great ship out. Um, and, and people gathered to greet these ships come in. They would have done the first, you know, one of the, the season, uh, grain supplies mm -hmm. low, and then you think, hang on, hang on, we were, grain, talking, bakery. We were talking about a baker. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then you, you have another look at this. There, there, there are two pictures of the baker mm. in the museum in Naples. And uh, they're both fabulous, really, but the, the most stunning one is the baker and his wife. 
uh, which in a black and white version that I put in the books, I think they're a stunning couple. They, they, these two really have it together. There's something very effective about them. And this picture was on the side of, on the wall in, the, in their house. The other one is of the baker giving, seemingly giving away bread mm. to people who look like poor people. Mm-hmm. Now, the clue here to these pictures that both of them, he's in a bleached toga. And apparently the bleached toga was a uniform for people standing for election to do a political job mm-hmm. in the town, of uh, which they did out of their own money um, to uh, support the welfare of the city. Mm-hmm. And, and there was an election poster also found in their home. So that we know that the baker stood, and there he is in his bleached toga, doing clearly a very generous job for society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the possibility, uh, you know, the, the timing of it all is all very close to, uh, okay, 79 AD, it could have been 10 years later, it may have been his father who was running the shop beforehand. But the idea that somebody from that mm. bakery was there when Paul pulled in uh, seems to me to be a fascinating because the, the, the message got through to Rome and people came down from Rome to meet him mm. along the Appian Way. Mm. Um, you even talk about the, that painting of the, the baker and, and his wife, how the, the portrayal of the wife in that painting is sort of countercultural as well. It, well, yeah, it seems to me from what one knows of that city and that world, here's a very modestly dressed woman, but she's put forward, she's in front of him, mm. and she's looking very efficient. She's got her stylus up against her lip, and she's got her board that she's making notes mm. on. You know, the thought that she was on the quayside mm. greeting the grain ship, saying, right, well, we want 15 sacks of that quality grain, yeah. and I want to take them to that boat over there to take across the bay mm. uh, to, to Pompeii. Mm. Uh, you know, she just seems to be very much in command of the situation. Mm. And he's standing there looking very smart with a scroll in his hand. They're clearly yeah. literate people. Uh, modest people, but they're effective. They're 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 mm. they're, they're sharp. They're not um, mm. bludgeoned and, and crushed by society. Mm. And apparently, another clue is that outside their house, uh, there were um, stars of David scratched on the wall. Right. So we've got good reason yeah, to think yeah. that they were Jews. Um, good reason, I think, looking at these pictures of both of their generosity. Uh, of, of his election uh, for, as a candidate um, and uh, of her looking so trim and efficient that these could well be Christian people who are really getting on with it. So just, just maybe they welcomed Paul back to their city and, and broke bread with him, had communion with bread baked from their shop. Absolutely, absolutely. Or that during that week, perhaps he stayed in Puteoli because mm. uh, he was under guard, so he probably didn't have much freedom as to mm. where he went. But the word went out, hey, the, the Paul is there, he's on his way to Rome. And, and people came t- to hear him. You can't imagine Paul not seizing the opportunity to teach the people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't going to think, oh, I'm now stuck here for a week with nothing to do. Uh, he wasn't that kind of guy, really. Wow. So, you know, we'll never know the yeah. answers to that. 
but it, but it just fits with the historical it, context. This is what I was saying about this yeah. business of the jigsaw puzzle. Mm. That all the more you bear down mm. all these details, mm. you think, ah, that fits there exactly. Mm. Mm. Uh, that that's why this is not just you know discussion of ancient history for the sake of discussion of ancient history. Interesting as, as that it, that is, but uh, but about our communication of the the gospel today, saying to people, this this is about truth. And does it fit with with the history, and that that's something that you yes. can investigate and ask questions about, and and engage in dialogue about here and now on the basis of things that we can not prove, but but pl- plausibly have reasons for and against, yes. you know, our views on, and sufficiently compelling reasons that Christianity exploded in the ancient mm. world at that time. Mm. I've been reading a book just recently which says that Christianity exploded. Um, in the last part, the last three decades of the first century, it mm. didn't. Mm. It exploded much earlier than that, as uh, these various things that we've talked about indicate. Um, it was in the middle of the century that, mm. that it was just running through the communities mm. uh, in a very exciting way. Mm. And, and is that the, to bring us back to? time at medical school mm. and the student work there's just been two times where I've seen the gospel run through a community it ran through the community at medical school causing well our group grew from 10 to 50 in about 18 months of mm. people becoming Christians and I saw it also working with Keith Fox in Cambridge at Jesus College Cambridge in 1976 uh, where we had significant exposure to the community over a week of dialogue events, um, in the next six months they saw a steady trickle of people coming into the kingdom. And uh, those two times, both for Keith and myself, were highly precious uh, memories, as you just realised that when the gospel is being talked about Mm. and runs its course, lives get turned around. Mm-hmm. Amen. Oh, what a wonderful place to draw our conversation to an end. Oh, thank you, Peter, for coming. Thanks for the tea. Thanks for being quiet most of the time, Ari. Yes, you yeah. did very well, Ari, under the circumstances. Yeah. <laughs>